Section 8 of Open the Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. Open the Door by Catherine Carswell. Book 1, Chapter 6, Part 1. 1. One day, upon coming into the house, she found a letter waiting for her on the lobby table. She knew at once that it wasn't from Bob. Her first glance on coming in was always at the lobby table, in case there might be a letter from him, and anything else was a disappointment. But this letter, or rather a package, had some interest. It was rolled up carelessly in a newspaper wrapper, stamped with an Italian stamp, and marked Manoscriti, to save in postage. She would have opened it at once, but her hands were full, and she was tired. So she took it unopened to her bedroom, and threw it on the bed while she rid herself of her outdoor clothes. She kicked off her shoes in the way her mother never ceased to deplore, tossed her hat upon the chest of drawers, and her coat across a chair. How tired she was! Stooping to the mirror on the dressing table and thrusting back her hair with both hands, she peered at her face in the fading light. She was certainly rather white, and there were blue pathetic shadows under her eyes. A wave of self-pity swept over her. People said youth was a happy time. She knew better. And there and then she determined that she would harbor no such sentiment in old age. Don't forget, she adjured herself, don't ever let yourself forget that when you were young you were very, very unhappy. And throwing herself with the utmost dejection upon the bed, she lay there staring at the ceiling. Oh, how familiar that ceiling was! There, in the middle, were the plugged-up holes in the plaster showing where the trapeze had hung, in the days when the room was a nursery. And there, in one corner, was a network of cracks like a map. Long ago, Joanna had connected this network with her mother's weekly petition at prayers for India, China, and the distant islands of the sea. And looking at it now, she wished vehemently that she had been born in one of these remote lands. She was certain that no one in China or the distant isles could be so bereft of life as she. Why, in India, girls married at twelve, and we were asked to be sorry for them. As she stretched out her arms in a gesture of weariness, the back of her hand came against the forgotten letter. There it was, still unopened. She remained supine. She would barely admit the diversion, but she lost not a moment in stripping off the wrapper and in no time then she was sitting upright to smooth out the flimsy foreign sheets against her knee. They were so crossed and recrossed as to be legible only with difficulty, but she had glanced at the end, and with a queer little shock of excitement had discovered who the writer was. It was a letter from Aunt Purdy in Italy. After some reshuffling, Joanna found the beginning. My dear child and niece, she read, you will no doubt be surprised to hear from me, and possibly your mother will be displeased at my writing. But the latter cannot be helped, and as for the former, life is and ever will be full of surprises for you as for me. How, you ask, do I know this? Ebene, as we say here, I will tell you. This morning, it is now evening, and from my lovely cot as I write I can see the sun dropping behind my beloved Carraras like a ball of fire. I was clearing an old trunk when I came upon a family birthday book. To refresh my memory, I began looking through it. The quotations for each day are found from our dear Robbie Burns. And what do you think I found? 
why that the only two births in march for our family are yours and my own do you realize what that means joanna no you do not but your aunt purdy will tell you for she has devoted years of her life to studying the wondrous signs of the zodiac and march the month of aries the ram i e the lamb is the most mystical month of the twelve it is in march that the earth is born afresh every year our saviour was born in march not in december as is vulgarly supposed though i will not go into that now and the chosen of god those who are sent into the world to teach and to suffer ah above all my joanna to suffer see the light under the celestial dominion of the lamb which was from the foundation of the world to suffer but also to rejoice as those born in any of the other months know not joy here followed a rough diagram of the zodiacal signs this then ran the letter again is why i write to you of all my kindred though you are of a younger generation and i doubt not that whatever you have heard of me from your deluded conventional father and my poor weak sister must have prejudiced you against me probably also you are stupid but you were born in march and this gives me hope that my voice will pierce through all the falseness and deadness enclosing a sister soul i believe that some day you will come out to this glorious land of liberty and sunshine this refuge of great-hearted exiles like myself like dear byron like shelley and a host of others to whom freedom was life the letter ended with a fervent if indefinite invitation joanna's interest was excited she resented her aunt's disparagement of her parents the zodiacal signs did not greatly impress her but she was roused because of the immediate echoing of her own nature to aunt purdy's the letter meant to her far more than it said and it did more than it meant it opened an unexpected door of escape she remembered now of a sudden how her mother had sometimes sadly remarked upon a likeness between her and the strange aunt this must now be verified and instantly she ran downstairs to the drawing-room and there kneeling all eagerness before the inlaid cabinet with its glass doors at either side displaying missionary trophies she lifted out the family album it had gilt-edged boards and brass clamps and clasps and lay heavy on her lap as she opened it yes here was aunt purdy one of a group of quaint little girls with long drawers showing under their funny dresses and here she was coquettish in a voluminous riding habit looped up in half a dozen places with her hair in a net and a tiny billycock hat tipped over her nose and here again she looked up from an open book her chin in her hand her pretty elbow on a fringed table her soul in her eyes in all the full-face portraits the eyes rather more deeply set in the head than joanna's were remarkable oracular in their intensity earnestly searching for a likeness to herself the girl found it most clear in a carte de visite photograph in which her aunt was looking down at a baby on her knees while a little boy surely gerald leaned against his mother's full skirts his legs in their striped trousers mannishly crossed here the capricious sunlight had proclaimed the resemblance unmistakably and joanna saw that it was one of contour rather than of features there was a faintly japanese suggestion a flatness of structure it must have been this thought joanna that had made nilsson one of the art school masters tell her once how like she was to a primitive sienese painting then as she still searched the album an idea blazed in her mind she would learn latin why had she never thought of it before 
the word Italy had always held for her even more than the ordinary measure of romance. Julie's eyes had lightened when she talked to her children of Italy, much as they lightened when she talked of heaven. Grandpapa Erskine, with his generous theory of education, had taken his motherless daughters, while still in their teens, to Rome. In Rome he had accepted the charge of the Presbyterian Church, and had begun to write his life of Hildebrand. In Rome, later on, after forming many ties with the land of his adoption, he had died. There were cousins of Joanna's in Italy of whom she knew very little. Gerald had sisters, while another Erskine, Aunt Minnie, was married to a Frenchman and had a large family at Turin. They never came to England, but they sent cards and photographs at Christmas time, giving glimpses of a life wonderfully different from the life in Glasgow. And now had come this voice from Italy, claiming Joanna out of all the connection as a kindred spirit. Surely it was the voice of life. Surely she would answer it. And to begin with, she would go to the Italian class at the university. The session was just beginning. She would go to Gilmore Hill to make sure that very afternoon. 2. Still enlivened with her thoughts, she approached one of the southern entrances of the park through which she was going to the university, and there it came upon her with surprise that she was walking amid beauty. The October day was yielding up its breath in faint, dun-colored vapors, and the poor and harsh outlines of this region had borrowed for the time an appealing loveliness. Church spires, St. Jude's among them, and tall houses, mysterious at their bases, rose triumphantly through the sullied lower air to the serenely brooding blue above where they seemed suspended. And away to the left, on its hill, dominating the park, the Gothic University stood high and black and alien against the sky. Before entering by the wide iron gates, Joanna paused to look. Here, too, all was clothed with the magic of the hour. By day a squalid, railed enclosure where growing things found a precarious life, the park showed itself now as a place of wonder, a dim paradise, which as the evening deepened would become murmurous with lovers. In her full response the girl drew an audible breath of delight and entered. After all it was good at this moment just to be alive, just to breathe. The desire came upon her for liberated movement, the deep-set human longing for wings. If only one could flit, swift and noiseless through the haze. She glanced behind her. It was barely the hour for lovers. No one was in sight. She chose one of the higher terraces on her right, where many a time as a child she had bowled a hoop, and started to run. Her feet made hardly any sound, speeding along the path of hard earth, and her light-balanced body was exonerated in its flight through the dusk. But before reaching the flagstaff and the group of Crimean guns that threatened the university from their height, she sat down on a bench and stayed there motionless a while. From here she overlooked the whole park. Behind her curved the topmost terrace, with its stone balustrade and its crown of steep French roofs. Below lay the level murkiness where moving water was, and captive wild birds uttered disturbing cries. Triple globes marked where the new granite bridge spanned the Kelvin, and in places a pair of yellow lamps showed how a cab threaded one of the wider ways. It was a little world to itself, shut in, and stupor rose. But beyond it, to the south, where a brilliant segment of light marked its confines, Joanna could see where the real world began. Nay, she could hear, coming from the Clyde across all that distance, yet as if it were the beating of her own heart, the dull, steady pounding of the yards. 
but when the first quiverings of pleasure were subsided the beauty and pathos of her surroundings became a trouble to her and she wondered as she had wondered countless times before why this should be why was she not content simply to admire and enjoy loveliness when she had perceived it why must she suffer from the desire herself to be or do some loveliness what was this ever thwarted need of her being to give itself utterly to the achievement of she knew not what she recalled her mother's words years ago on seeing the clyde shipping in sunshine let us make our lives to match it impassionately joanna wanted to conform to loveliness she longed to be in harmony with the beauty she had always worshipped but how perhaps as dr rankin had so often used his pulpit to say this desire ever unfulfilled and this oppression proved that her home was in heaven not on earth her mother she knew believed this and was there not something in one's soul which proclaimed it to be true she rose slowly she was tired again and unhappy and the evening was barren of magic still with a certain saving stolidity she persevered in her resolution and walked on to the university there she learned that she was too late as the matriculation office was closed for the day it was scarcely a disappointment on her way out walking listlessly through the quadrangle where the professors live she heard behind her the footsteps of someone gaining on her and before she had reached the postern a man passed her stepping quickly in the dusk she saw that he was smallish and slight that he wore no overcoat and something foreign about his alert figure drew her attention the next moment as if in response to this the stranger turned his head and regarded her fixedly thereupon joanna's observation ceased to be conscious she had become too acutely aware of herself under his curiously frank scrutiny she carried home with her the impression of a white small-featured face that seemed scornfully alive the man must be a foreigner probably an italian who else should he be but celebrini the italian lecturer whom as it happened she did not know by sight the certainty that he could be of none other quickened her failing resolve to join the class of which she was the teacher three on the opening day a week later she arrived ten minutes before the hour of the lesson to find herself alone with one young man amid a shabby expanse of benches both fellow students were too shy to speak and joanna observing no more than that her companion was dark and bashful chose a place at some distance from him the ordinary university youth did not interest her even while he might embarrass her and she gazed with suppressed excitement at the dusty gothic window panes on which flaws of rain were appearing there was no doubt in her mind that the lecturer would be the stranger who had stared at her by the gate presently a third person came in and joanna recognized a mrs lovett to whom she had been introduced not long ago at an evening entertainment at the art school mrs lovett a great friend of the director was a patron of the arts and a well-known figure in the west end joanna blushed with pleasure now when the little woman greeted her unhesitatingly i've forgotten your name she said but i remember quite well being introduced to you by my friend val Plummer." and she sat down by joanna bemoaning the size of the class she was a middle-aged woman but girlish looking with very bright eyes in her wrinkled pretty face under a soft gray felt hat her gray hair showed in a becoming disorder and with her gray flowing clothes she looked like a disheveled but attractive and perfectly composed little gray mouse she remembered admiring joanna's appearance and studied her now with bright approval and also with what joanna felt to be a touch of amused criticism 
without knowing it the girl coveted the elder woman's ease and her general air of experience the next to arrive was the lecturer and as he stepped up to the rostrum joanna looked up eagerly the disappointment was intense there standing above her was an emaciated tall old man bearded and rather bent surely there was some mistake surely dr celebrini the real dr celebrini must be ill and this old man had come to tell them so so firm was her dream that it had to persist a little in the face of reality but the next instant she knew that there had been no mistake except her own she had believed because she had so strongly desired the likely thing to be true there was no lecture that day and dr celebrini told them that unless at least six students were forthcoming there could be no class that session this had been decided by the senate he took down their names however and joanna learned that mrs lovett's christian name was mildred the dark boy who mumbled his name with a scotch tongue was called lawrence urquhart he left the classroom while joanna was helping mrs lovett to collect her scattered belongings some colored beads had rolled out of a leather wallet onto the floor and the two in picking them up became still more friendly mrs lovett hoped that joanna would come to one of her informal friday evenings and if no more students turned up she had the idea of having an italian class in her own house they went out together and as they passed from the darkness of the cloisters to daylight the sound of a door closing made them both look back between the broad stone pillars a man was hastening in their direction joanna could not see his face but she knew him instantly for her foreigner it is rasponi isn't it exclaimed mrs lovett screwing up short-sighted eyes the very man i want to speak to and leaving her companion she ran impulsively towards the italian joanna was shaken and she became half dead with embarrassment should she go slowly on should she wait should she hurry off no doubt the right thing would be for her to simply disappear but her fiercer longing chained her feet to the spot and in a few seconds she was joined by the others on the first meeting of their eyes joanna saw that recognition danced in rasponi's and something besides recognition as her name was made known to him he smiled showing a line of short milk-white teeth and his hand flew uncontrollably to his little black mustache his face in the daylight was not so much white joanna saw as ivory with fine carven features and remarkable eyelids there was something of the hardness of ivory in him too and there under the loose gray tweeds he was wearing she knew his body was like a coiled spring of steel he was energy itself but energy pent not radiant joanna had never been so aware of anything had never imagined anything so living she was acutely disquieted by his nearness in the quadrangle he excused himself for a moment as he wished to hand in a note at a professor's house the two women walked on slowly isn't he beautiful mildred lovett turned twinkling to her companion and a genius as well it seems too much for one man joanna startled had no response ready did one call men beautiful women were beautiful of course but men with their hairy ankles and he was a genius as well this meant an artist of some kind no doubt to conceal her confusion she asked what he did mrs lovett was surprised at the other's ignorance don't tell me you haven't seen him racing about the roads on that diabolical bicycle of his she exclaimed i should have thought everybody in glasgow must know him by now and she told how rasponi had fitted one of the new internal combustion engines to a specially strong bicycle of his own design and how he was doing research work at the university in connection with a new machine for flying people laugh at him she ended but i'm convinced myself that he'll succeed in time 
He'll either fly or break his neck, perhaps both. After Rasponi had come up with them again, they stood talking for a minute by the postern at the very spot where Joanna and he had first looked at each other. When Mrs. Lovett had spoken of the small Italian class, he turned to Joanna. You already know some Italian, perhaps, eh? His English had the exaggerated precision of the foreigner. It was not broken, but over-perfect. Joanna shook her head, and smiling he moved his eyes to Mrs. Lovett. Yet Mrs. Bannerman looks more Italian than I, though so fair. Do you not see it? he asked her. Modern Italian, perhaps, no? But of the Sassento. Why, there is her portrait in London in your National Gallery by a painter of the Venetian school. Bernardino Licinio, I think it is. You know it? But surely, the portrait of a young man it calls itself, but I have always doubted it, and it pleased me to have my doubts confirmed. Mrs. Lovett, her head on one side, looked at Joanna and tried to remember the picture he described. She was not successful, but agreed warmly that Miss Bannerman had struck her from the first as quite early Italian. Botticelli, she thought, or was it Luini? There was surely an angel wonderfully like her in one of Leonardo's groups. Unaccustomed to such talk, the young woman felt herself redden furiously. Nor was she spared by Rasponi. His eyes seemed to search her face, then they dwelt on her breast, then sought her feet. When Mrs. Lovett invited them both to have tea at her house one day soon, there seemed of a sudden no more to say. Joanna took leave of them, somehow. 4. In spite of its meager beginnings, the Italian class prospered. There came to be seven students in all. But the original three remained slightly apart from the rest, in a vague fellowship of their own, and they greeted each other with a special friendliness. Lawrence Urquhart was so manifestly glad to be included that Mrs. Lovett, in the kindness of her heart, invited him also to tea, and she liked the shy eagerness of his acceptance. His oddly featured dark face pleased her too, now that she came to look at it. "'Have you noticed what engaging eyes the creature has?' she asked Joanna. "'They are pretty often turned in your direction.' But Joanna almost resented words that once would have flattered her. She was absorbed by the emotions Rasponi had aroused. From the first he had sought her openly, the whole face of her life was changed. On the second day of the Italian class she had found him waiting for her by the gate. He had moved to meet her, sweeping off his hat with a gesture she would have found ridiculous in another man. But as he did it, it seemed beautifully to place power in her hands. "'It is cleared after the rain,' he said. "'Do you go down the hill and through the park? If so, that is my way also. My lodging is on the other side. May I go with you as far as our way lies together?' Joanna had meant to walk through the park, but suddenly, feeling flight to be imperative, she lied, saying that today she must take the nearer tram home. Rasponi gave a faint shrug which combined disappointment with resignation. "'May I come, then, as far as the terminus with you?' he said. To this there seemed only one possible reply, and she gave an unskillful assent, trying hard not to appear as raw and schoolgirlish as she felt." The southerner appeared to her a creature incapable of awkwardness. Passionately, she wished that her upbringing had been more gracious. At the park entrance, which was also the stopping place for Joanna's tram, three street musicians were tuning up. There was a harpist on a camp stool, a standing fiddler, and a cripple in a wheelchair, with a rug hiding his legs. They had settled themselves in the corner made by a church and the park railings, and instinctively Rasponi and Joanna paused, waiting for them to strike up. Joanna glanced back towards the university. At the top of Gilmore Hill, where the road cuts the sunset across, 
two cyclists had at that moment mounted from the far side their figures poised in the golden air of the summit stayed for a breath suspended as by a miracle then their machines swept downwards there was a rush of wind a shrill whirring of bells and they disappeared round the curve of the tram lines at that same instant as if by conspiracy the little band by the gates broke into dance music in the girl something was set free and her heart exulted no wonder pilcher chose this hill to test his gliders she looked at Rasponi to discover the meaning of his remark. He, too, was staring back up the way they had come, but his eyes shone with purpose. "'Perhaps you saw him trying them,' he continued. "'It must be about five years since his Glasgow experiments. A good man, that Pilcher.' But Joanna had not heard of Pilcher till now. She felt ashamed under Rasponi's incredulous glance and was relieved when he put the subject aside. There was still no car at the terminus. The harpist was thrumming diligently, the fiddler swayed as he tore the insistent melody out of his instrument, the deformed man in the chair gave forth the same air more delicately on a flute. They played well, and Joanna stood with Rasponi to hear the valse out. "'Ah, you see that!' This exclamation, vibrating and jubilant, was drawn from her companion by an action of the busy little flautist. He had swiftly exchanged his flute for a handful of bound reeds, lying concealed on his knees, and at a recurring phase of the melody he blew into the pan-pipes, drawing them sharply back and forth against his lips. "'Now we know why he has to hide his feet,' said Rasponi. And this time Joanna understood. He had moved closer to her under cover of the music. He spoke low, intimately. She nodded, smiling too, and their eyes met. Elated, the Italian was twisting up his mustache, and for the first time the girl saw his narrow, rapacious lips. "'Ah!' Yes, Mrs. Lovett was right. Beautiful he was, fine, gem-like. Yet for all his delicate, glittering quality, more male than any other man she had yet seen. Immediately the car came. She moved towards it, though before it could start the trolley-pole would have to be changed round. Rasponi saw her into it, lifted his hat, and to her surprise went off at once. He did not even turn around. She would have given anything to be by his side, but was committed to her perverse choice. She watched him till he was no more than a speck near the central fountain. End of section 8